How many of you remember that television series? The rest of you weren't born yet. How many of you are looking for Tom Cruise? <laughs> okay. Mission Impossible. God looked down on the creation and saw the impossible. The people he had created turned their backs on him in rebellion. Not only were they in rebellion against him, but they were doing terrible things to each other. His world needed saving, and it was impossible except for God. This series is entitled Mission Impossible, titled not because saving the world is impossible to God, but because it's impossible for us. It would take God himself in human form to take extraordinary, impossible actions in order to save or redeem his creation. And because of the enormity of the task, the mission, the sheer impossibility of it all, anyone engaged in that mission would require God inside of them, God's power to accomplish this mission. So God sent his son Jesus, God, to earth with a mission, a mission he has passed on to you and to me. It's mission impossible, not in the sense that it cannot be done, but in the sense that it is impossible with human resource or strength. But with God, all things are possible. Mission impossible, how God saved the planet Earth, the story of Jesus. As followers of Jesus Christ, we have a mission. And I want to take some time this morning to look at the inauguration, the very beginning of Jesus' mission as he declared it and described it to the church, and it's also the mission of the church of Jesus Christ today in this country, in America, around the world. I'd like you to turn with me, if you would, to Luke, the fourth chapter. A couple things to be aware of. If you are looking for the text in the Bible in the rack in front of you, it's on page 1018. It'll also be, the text will also be on the PowerPoint, if you prefer to read it that way. And also to note, um, there are notes in your bulletin. There's a separate sheet in there with notes and fill in the blanks. Some people say, some people really like filling in the blanks and taking notes, et cetera. Other people say, ah, I went to school before. I don't want to do that again. That's fine. Some people like to take notes. Some people don't. Don't feel guilty either way. But those are provided for your help and assistance. So let's go to Luke 4. Luke 4, starting with verse 14. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. And he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? Jesus said to them, surely you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. I tell you the truth, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. 
I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him down the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Jesus was at the very beginning of his ministry in public. He had just completed a 40-day fast in the desert and came back to Galilee. It was, a, it, was a, it was an area probably about the size of Eau Claire County. And he was creating a big stir with his teaching and his miracles. And then he came home to his hometown, which was Nazareth. This was a typical Sabbath day in Nazareth. On the Sabbath day, all good Jews attended a gathering at the local synagogue. See, back then they didn't have kids' soccer or swim programs. They didn't have professional football teams like the Packers or the Seahawks. They didn't have weekend activities like water skiing or boating or hiking or camping. And fishing was work, so nobody fished on the Sabbath. So everybody was in church on the Sabbath. Nazareth was a small town, so everybody knew everybody else. It was the custom at this gathering to ask someone to stand up and read the scripture passage for the day out of what was called the Torah. And then they would talk about it. They they were asked to say a few words. Everybody knew Jesus. He'd grown up. He was Joseph's son, the local carpenter. In fact, Jesus had probably done work for everybody in town. And now, of course, there were rumors that he he was traveling around, taking on the role of teacher, prophet, and doing miracles and signs and wonders. So they were really curious as to what this hometown boy was amounting to here. He was just, in their mind, a hometown boy. Jesus was asked to read the scripture, so he stood up to read, and the scroll of Isaiah handed it to him. He unrolled the scroll till he got to Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61 was a passage that was very familiar to all of the Jews of that day. They all knew the passage and knew that it was about the promise of the Messiah, that the Messiah was going to deliver Israel from all her enemies and set up the ruling dynasty of the house of David. Jesus read this passage and then he stopped short of the last sentence, the day of vengeance of our God. And we'll talk more about that later. And then he shocked the entire gathering by speaking eight words. It was a very short sermon. Some of you wish we could do short sermons like that. Eight words. And these eight words would change history. They catapulted Jesus from an obscure hometown carpenter to the most loved and most hated and most controversial man in all of Palestine. Those eight words, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus made a lot of statements and claims during his three-year ministry. Many of those had to do with his identity of who, who he was. He made some incredible claims. So what was Jesus saying here? What was his claim here? Before we look at his mission, we want to look at who Jesus claimed to be. These were Jesus' claims. Here, Jesus claimed to be the Messiah. And with that claim of Messiahship, claimed to be equal with God. 
It's interesting, it says Jesus spoke and the people were happy. Then Jesus spoke and they wanted to kill him. When it says they spoke well of him, it could also mean they spoke against him. Amazed can also mean surprised or shocked. And by the angry reaction, we don't really understand some of this and we're gonna try to get to it today. By the angry reaction that he received, it demonstrates the people of Nazareth knew exactly what he said and what it implied. He said, the spirit of the Lord is on me. Something supernatural was happening. So Jesus claimed to be God. Jesus claimed deity, and and he claimed deity at other times as well. In John 8, Jesus said, if you knew me, you would know my father also. He says, before Abraham was born, I am, which was his timeless uh, name for God himself. A claim to a deity that was followed by an attempt to stone him. See, Jesus made some outrageous claims to be God. Now, if we are to be followers of Jesus, we must start here. We must take his claims seriously. Some people today, some people today claim to be, believe in Jesus, but are not willing to say that Jesus was anything other than a great philosopher, a, a remarkable teacher, and that they will say, you know, Jesus never claimed to be God. That's not true. They tried to stone him numerous times because he claimed to be God. People don't get killed for being a nice teacher. But if you claim to be God, that was blasphemy and under Jewish law, deserving of death. And clearly, Jesus made somebody mad. They were mad at him. As followers of Jesus, we must understand the claims Jesus made of himself. Now, we can draw several conclusions about Jesus, but really, only three. These are outlined by many people over the years. Josh McDowell wrote a book, Evidence at Man's Verdict, and he, he outlines these too. Jesus was not just a moral teacher. He gives us three options. Number one, he had to be a lunatic. Lunatic. In other words, he was delusional like people today who claim to be President Lincoln or Amelia Earhart or Elvis Presley. Crazy. You know, say, this guy was crazy. He was claiming to be God. Okay? Or he was a liar. And that would mean that Jesus was sane, but he knew his claims were false. And he was just trying to make everybody believe he was who he was. Or the third option, he was Lord. He was real man and real God. He was the person he claimed to be, the Son of God. Equal with God, one and the same. This is the starting point of Jesus' mission. It must be the starting point of our mission. That Jesus is uniquely God, uniquely man, and he has all the power in the universe that Jesus is, was, always will be God. So then what did Jesus say his mission was? What is our mission? Jesus' mission is articulated in five phrases that we're gonna look at in just a minute. We're gonna look at the five parts of his, his mission, but first of all, I wanna give some, um, some background uh, in, into this passage. Um, this passage is used to promote all kinds of ideas from l- Liberation theology, bless you. Um, Social action, social justice, ministry, the poor, and downtrodden. In other words, people have used this to justify all kinds of things. But when Jesus came, he came to build a kingdom in the spiritual realm, not the physical realm. It works its way out in the physical realm, but that's not the starting point. Jesus did not start food banks and soup kitchens. Now, after he fed the 5,000, they tried to make him king by force. Why? Because they said, free food. We could start 
these food banks and soup kitchens and we can all have food the rest of our lives. He said, no, that's not why I came. He didn't, he didn't set up a welfare system to care for the poor. He didn't establish government programs or a political party. What Jesus did do was change the hearts of selfish human beings, change their value system, change their priorities, then they developed the passion to meet the needs of the poor, the sick, and the marginalized. The sequence is always heart change that produces social change. When people embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ, the results have produced hospitals and water wells and food banks and soup kitchens, clothing the naked, feeding the hungry, caring for the poor, taking care of the elderly, taking care of the needy. But we must not put the cart before the horse. Jesus came to change hearts, which then produced good works. Save the soul, then save the body, somebody once said. Christians can do both. In the 1970s, some of you weren't born yet, that's okay. In the 1970s, when the Cambodian people were fleeing the communist regime in Southeast Asia, thousands of refugees were fleeing across the border to Thailand. Now we see, we're seeing uh, some problems in Europe right now with displaced peoples and refugees. This was happening in Cambodia where the, the repressive communist regime was murdering thousands of people and they were fleeing into Thailand, which was the neighboring country. The predominant religions in the region were Hinduism and Buddhism. Several agencies were setting up and working refugee camps along the border, feeding and sheltering and clothing these homeless people. And all the groups that were doing such were Christian. They were Christians. And when asked why the other religious groups were absent, they replied, the the Hindus have a caste system, so they believe this is just their lot in life. The Buddhists believe they must have been experiencing bad karma because they did something bad in their past life. But Christianity, with its offer of unconditional love and grace, was rescuing the masses of refugees. Worldview matters. Heart change matters. Jesus came to change hearts. Who started all the ministries to poor in America? Christian churches. Who started all the schools and institutions of higher learning, including Harvard and Yale? Christian churches. Who founded hospitals in America and sent medical missions throughout the world? Christian churches. I could go on and on. The results of heart change is always social action. There's always something that comes out of that. But social action cannot replace internal heart transformation or we've given up our primary mission. So what was Jesus' mission? What was Jesus' mission? First phrase, preach good news to the poor. Preach good news to the poor. Now what is good news? What is good news? This good news was God loves you. You matter to God. God has a plan for you. Even if you do not have a relationship with God, he's taken steps to establish a relationship with you. Even though we are rebels by nature, we want to run our own life and leave God out. We have done a lot of wrong things. The good news is that God came to establish that relationship with God. He paid for all the wrong things that we have done, those things that are called sin, We did the crime, he did the time by dying for us. And if we ask for forgiveness and accept God's forgiveness and make him the leader of our life, he will change us, transform us from the inside. That is the good 
news. The good news. And this good news is to be declared, declared, preached and proclaimed to the poor. But what does that mean, the poor? Who are the poor? Kenneth Bailey, uh, who wrote Jesus through Middle Eastern Eyes, writes that in the Hebrew language, there are two words for poor. One is ani, which is translated poor, and ana, which is translated meek. And they're used nearly interchangeably in the book of Isaiah. Ani is translated the people with not enough to eat. Ana is translated the humble and pious who seek God. And the word poor, the conclusion, is that the poor in this context means those who are humble and pious who seek God. People who are spiritually seeking, who know they have spiritual need. Now, if you look around you and you talk to people, everybody seems to be into some kind of a spirituality. They're looking for meaning in life. They're looking for meaning in, in, in some kind of spiritual expression or some kind of spiritual religion, whatever it is. Everybody's looking for, everybody has this desire and this need to have some kind of a spiritual interaction with God. But they try to fill it with all these other kinds of, of things that, that, and activities that they take on. The conclusion here is that our mission is to tell the good news to the poor, those who are spiritually seeking, those who are poor in spirit, empty spiritually, impoverished in spirit. Spiritually empty, those who lack purpose, there's no direction. And if you look at people around you, you can see people with empty eyes and empty faces and, and empty lives. They can be wealthy physically, but poor and bankrupt spiritually. People who have everything they've ever wanted, yet are dissatisfied and have nothing. The second phrase describing Jesus' mission is to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. Being a prisoner means losing your freedom or your autonomy and being held against your will. It's a, a loss of control. Someone else controls every part of the prisoner's life. This refers to refugees going home or the release to captives understood to mean the freedom to return home. And the context is the year of Jubilee in which all the slaves are released, debts canceled, and prisoners are set free. We don't have time to go into what the year of Jubilee is, but it's a time when all the prisoners are set free in the Jewish nation. The picture here is that the age of Messiah, which is Jehovah's time for bestowing great blessings on his people, is here. Now, if you go to visit someone in prison, as I have, you discover that someone else controls every part of their life. There are few choices and there's no freedom. Here, Jesus is speaking of prisoners not in the physical sense of incarceration. He's speaking of people in bondage in other ways, physically, financially, in servitude, owned by someone or something else. And there are people all around us who are starving, they're tortured, they're leading lives of desperation. Prisoners of circumstances, prisoners of addictions, prisoners of habits, prisoners of guilt, prisoners of their past, prisoners of fear, and they may be, be, be poor, they may be middle class, they may be rich, but all of them are imprisoned and they need to be set free. And Jesus came to declare and proclaim them free. People need to know that. The word that says, I would declare you to be free. 
Not long ago, a judge ordered a prisoner who had been held for 20 years be released from prison because he was found innocent. What made him free? It was the declaration of the judge from the bench, you are free. It's a proclamation. That's the proclamation Jesus came to say, I am here to set you free. You are free. What holds you prisoner today? An addiction? A guilt? A relationship? A a, a sin you can't shake? Whatever it is. Jesus proclaims freedom for you. Our mission is to verbally proclaim freedom for those that need to be set free. Third, to proclaim recovery of sight to the blind. A friend of mine told me about a frightening experience he had while fishing off the coast of the Washington, state of Washington. While they were fishing this, in a, in a five minute time period, a huge fog bank rolled in, and it happened so fast, they didn't have time to get their bearings. They, they totally lost sense of direction, the, the, the waves were choppy, they were a long ways offshore, and they couldn't tell which way the waves were going, so they had no sense of direction. They could hear foghorns and boat whistles of larger boats in the area, but were rendered totally blind by the fog. And he shared his feelings of total helplessness and sense of danger, and fortunately, one of them had a compass on board so they could figure out which way was east, and so they went east and actually ran into the coast of Washington. Now, many people today are are just like that. They they feel like this fog bank has rolled into their life, and and they feel directionless. They feel like they don't know which way is up. They they don't know where to go, and they're in danger of of being lost because they don't know. It's this blindness that that comes on us. 2 Corinthians 4 says, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. It says, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Many people live in that blindness. I don't know if you've ever talked to somebody about the truth. You've tried to share the truth and they just don't get it. They just don't see it. The gods of the Gods of this world have blinded them. We are called to help people find the truth and to see the truth. Our mission is to pray, bring truth, speak truth, and proclaim recovery of sight for the blind. Fourthly, to release the oppressed. The oppressed or downtrodden, those who are bruised or wounded, literally means to break in pieces, a broken heart or even a broken body. These are people that are the walking wounded. Experiences of life have devastated them, wounded them. How many people do you have in your relationship circles that are walking around wounded? You get below the surface and you talk about real life and you find out that they've gone through some horrendous things in their life. Maybe it's a death in the family. Maybe it's a divorce. Maybe it's they were fired from a job. Maybe it was an abusive situation at home or suffering a miscarriage or dealing with infertility. Broken lives and Broken relationships, shattered dreams, hopeless and in pain. Jesus came to mend those broken hearts. He came to mend those broken lives. That's his mission. Humpty Dumpty sat on the wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men could not put Humpty Dumpty 
back together again. All the powers of our modern society, all the technology, all the advances in science, engineering, and medicine, none have the ability to put a broken back life back together again. But Jesus can. That's why he came. How's your life right now? Is your life broken? Jesus came to set you free from that brokenness, to heal those hurts. We get to the last section, and we find that there's a new day. There's a new method. There's something new happening. 2 Corinthians 10 says, For though we live in the world... We do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. Do we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God? And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. There's a whole message, whole sermon on that. But this is talking about the fact that God's kingdom has been established in a brand new way. His kingdom has arrived. And that's when Jesus says, I'm here to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The fact that Satan has had his way, he he came to steal, kill, and destroy, and I've come in to establish a new order. Into this world of misery and brokenness and want, the power of God has broken in through Jesus. Jesus came in with power. Jesus came in to set up his kingdom. He broke into Satan's miserable realm of bondage, fear, hate, and pain and sets us free. God's rule is established. It's like a new sheriff is in town. Of course, this kingdom that Jesus came to bring was going to look different than what the people thought. These people thought they had it all figured out. They thought they knew what the Messiah was supposed to do. So we see Jesus' claims and Jesus' mission. How do the people respond? And how do we respond today? This is the so what. Okay, we've gone through all of this, and thank you for staying with me in all this part of the passage, explaining and looking at that. Now it's the so what. What is the the people's response? What is our response? What Jesus did was outside the box. Okay, I think we all agree with that. What Jesus did was outside the box. These people had their understanding of who God was and how he operated. They'd they'd done the same things for about 400 years. Their God was manageable, predictable, and knowable. Jesus didn't fit in their box. Their expectations of the Messiah were radically different. Besides, wasn't this Joseph's son? Wasn't this my neighbor? Wasn't this my cousin, my carpenter? I mean, he fixed my dining room table. How important could he be? These people were too familiar with who they thought Jesus was. Now, Christians today, as Christians today, we think we know God so well that we know how he operates. We don't. And Jesus confronts these people with the truth. No prophet is accepted in his hometown. He gives two illustrations of the Jewish people misconception and their past pattern. It was a pattern of rejecting God's work because it didn't fit their box. The first one was Elijah. Elijah was rejected by Israel, so he healed a Gentile named the Syrian. Then, Elisha, oh, I'm sorry, Elijah was rejected by the Jews, so he went to a Gentile widow. 
Elisha was rejected by Israel, so he healed a Gentile, Naaman the Syrian. It's a two-sided mission, and the implication is clear. He says, accept God's work, or he's going to go somewhere else. Accept God's work, or he'll go somewhere else. Dostoevsky said, men reject their prophets and slay them, but they love their martyrs and honor those whom they've slain. One key point, when Jesus quoted Isaiah 61, he left out one key phrase. And for the Jew, this was the most important phrase. This was the most important phrase. After the day of the Lord's favor, there was a sentence that said, the day of the vengeance of our God. The Jews thought the Messiah was coming just for them, for their benefit. And the irony is that it was their rejection of the Messiah that spread the message, love, and work of God elsewhere around the world. Jesus was not bringing the vengeance of God. He was bringing the grace of God. He was bringing love and forgiveness. Nazareth longed for the day of vengeance against her enemies. And Jesus turned this text of judgment into a text of mercy. See, when Elijah and Elisha went to the Gentile heathen people, they didn't go to bring judgment but healing. God's judgment instead was reserved for the people of God for their rejection of God's work. God had something great to do, but it was outside the box, outside the box of their understanding and experience. Jesus was preaching to the insiders that the gospel was going to much bigger outside of you because of your rejection of me. So who are the insiders today? Who are the insiders? I'm, it includes me, includes you, it's the church. God wants to do something special here in Eau Claire through you, this church. But I believe that what he wants to do is going to be outside the box of our experience. It's going to be outside the box of our understanding. It's going to be outside the box of our comfort zones, perhaps outside the box of our personal preferences and tastes. But it's God's work. And most often, God works outside the boxes that we create for him. Are we known today as the good news people? The circle of those that God loves is much bigger than what the church has drawn. And God wants to do something special. What is our response? There are only two possible responses. Very quickly. Accept and embrace. Accept what God is doing. Embrace what God wants to do. Get behind God's work. Support it. Pray for it. Get engaged in it. And experience God's blessing. Or number two, rejection. Rejection. Rejection means to refuse to let God operate outside the box of our experience, understand, understanding. To become angry and say, no. God will always find someone else or another group. But rejection means to experience the judgment of God. God has called us to mission impossible. I want to encourage you to take the challenge in the preaching the good news to the poor, proclaiming freedom to the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, and release for the oppressed. And proclaim not a message of judgment, condemnation, or vengeance, but a message of Jesus, of love, grace, acceptance, 
and forgiveness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you love us in amazing ways. And you love the world that we are in. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would challenge us anew to get engaged in the mission, realizing it is, for us, it's impossible. We don't have the capacity. We don't have the ability. Your Holy Spirit must fill us and use us for that. I pray, God, that we would be willing to look outside the box and practice whatever it is you call us to practice, to reach people that are unreachable. God, that you would transform our lives and hearts. And as you transform our lives and hearts, we would have a compassion and a passion to reach those that are spiritually seeking, people who are hungry, people who are oppressed, people who are downtrodden, people who have needs. Lord, open our eyes. Let us see the people as you see them so we can reach those that are not being reached. Change our hearts. Let's stand, shall we, as we sing together. Make this your prayer. I give you my heart. Make that your prayer. I'm going to ask if everybody can be seated for a few moments. Worship team can be seated as well. And I'd like to introduce our district superintendent, superintendent of the state of Wisconsin, a man I've grown to love and respect over the last two months that I've known him, or three months. <laughs> Had great conversations. And... Uh, I'd like to introduce Pastor Dan Bickle, and I'd like us to give him a warm welcome. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Pastor Mark. It's great to be here. I want to say, first of all, that uh, we are so delighted, Pastor Mark and Judy, that you are here. Uh, we are we're excited about uh, what God has brought you on in the journey and to be here. I wanna just say a few words to you as a congregation and then we'll bring them up and uh, ask them some questions and then we'll, we'll finish with some questions to you as a congregation. I really appreciated what you shared today uh, about Jesus and, and where the mission has to originate and, and what, what the journey uh, was going to be, but really that foundation of that. One of the things that I that I remember is, uh, it was uh, John Kaiser that, that articulated this, where he said that in every church there are three competing decisions that we have to make about who we are going to minister to and who we are going to be. He said the, the, the first one is the, the group that is the church, the inside group. Um, are, are we supposed to take care of them? The second one is the group that is outside, those that are outside the faith that have yet to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And then the third competing decision is both. So in other words, caring for those inside, caring for those that are outside the faith, or both. And so what do we do with those three competing things? And then he went on to say that the, the important question is, and the thing that will define whether a church will live or die, is the, is the follow-up question, which is, 
who goes first? You see, the answer to the first question is both. We are responsible in ministry to do both those who are inside who need to be taken care of and loved and discipled, but also those that are outside. And the question is, who goes first? That defines whether there is going to be life or death for a church. The people that are outside the faith go first. It is the responsibility of the pastor to care for the the sheep, to take care of the discipling and the loving and and the articulation of the word and the motivation of heart and spirit in order to move us collectively to the place where God is going to build his kingdom. That's his responsibility. You see, we believe that in the scripture and in the, in the dynamics of the church that God calls out certain ones to lead us. Pastor Mark has been called to lead. And so therefore, this, this morning we are celebrating and affirming the fact that God has called them to come and to lead this congregation, lead in, in this community. So with those uh, introductory remarks, I would love to ask Pastor Mark and Judy if you would come forward, please. In the Wesleyan Church, Pastor Mark and Judy, we also believe in the collective wisdom of the, the process that we go through in the Wesleyan Church. And for those of you who are not familiar with that, we believe that Pastor Mark and Judy have a say in whether God is leading them to come to Eau Claire and to minister in this place. But we also believe we have the district, the Wesleyan Church, the, the board, the leadership, and the congregation itself who are all a part of that process. And it is our dream and it is our desire, of course, that we have all been praying and we have all been listening to the Spirit of God to say, what is the next chapter? And who is going to lead this congregation and this ministry here in this community? And so with that, I have a couple of questions that I wanna ask you, one very serious. The first one, though, I wanna ask uh, for this congregation and for myself, how do you pronounce your last name. Nordvet. Nordvet. Okay, there's, there's, there's. Nordit Nordit. Nordit Vedit. Okay, that's how she say. What is your maiden name? Amdal. 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 Okay. Yeah. And and what what's the nation? That's Norwegian. Norwegian, yeah, she says, Norwegian, yeah, okay. Well, so I rest my case, right? (laughs) It's wonderful to have you here. Second Timothy says, preach the word, be prepared at all times, correct, confront, and encourage with lots of patience and careful instruction. Keep your head in all situations, endure the tough times, Go after lost people and faithfully do your job in ministry. 
Mark, the duties are pretty clearly outlined in the word of God. You're to preach God word, God's word. You're to care for this congregation. You're to lead them. You're to correct them. You're to encourage them. You're to pray for them. And most of all, you lead them with love. You're also to reach out and serve those in this community. You aren't just called to pastor this church. You are called to lead the church in pastoring a community. And there's a huge difference in that, in that philosophy, in that understanding. The scripture also speaks of a leader's responsibility in the home. Be a faithful husband and father and be above suspicion. Watch your life and your doctrine closely because others will be too. Every one of us will be and everyone in this community that you connect with. Remember that what you do affects not only you and your family, but this church family, the district, the Wesleyan Church, and the entire body of Christ. And so, Mark, do you promise to diligently fulfill these duties? If so, answer, yes, I do, with God's help. Yes, I do, with God's help. Amen. You've heard that. You've heard that. And we believe that. At this time, I'd like to ask the congregation to stand, please because I have a couple of questions that, and things that I want to say to you. You have called Pastor Mark to be your pastor at this church, and I realize and I understand because I have been a pastor and I've gone through transitions and sometimes that's hard, it's awkward for the congregation, it's awkward for them as they begin to get to know who you are in order to lead you effectively, and they will do that. But understand that when he talked about mission impossible, it will be impossible without God, of course. It will also be impossible if you think that he is coming here and you have hired him to do a performance on Sunday morning. You see, he is called to lead you in order to pastor and minister to a congregation that is hungry and desperate for the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that cannot be done with them alone. We have to join together. And so that's why always when we do an installation, this is right at the beginning of writing a new chapter for the Eau Claire Wesleyan Church in this community. But as we, as we began the writing of that chapter, I, it's so important that you as a congregation affirm to them that you are going to pray for and you are going to follow well and you are going to work together and you're gonna roll up your sleeves and you're gonna stand shoulder to shoulder to accomplish the mission that God has called you to, to accomplish here in this community. And so my question to you, congregation, is are you, going to be will, are you willing to this morning and from this day forward to love and respect your pastor. Amen. Understand that your pastor is going to love and respect you as a congregation. I'm, I'm, I'm imploring you today to embrace Pastor Mark and Judy as they lead and work with you. And together you can do great things in expanding his kingdom here in the Chippewa Valley. And so my question to all of you again is, do you accept 
these responsibilities? And if so, would you collectively say yes by the help of God? Amen. I I think that was a very firm affirmation. (laughs) All right. I'm going to ask, would you remain standing? We're just about done here, but we're going to pray for Pastor Mark and Judy. And any of you that are here that are part of the board, the leadership, I want you to come representing the congregation. Would you come and would you stand behind Pastor Mark and Judy, as we pray for them. One of the things as as they are coming to stand behind and lay hands on them as a symbol of their affirmation and support and love and respect is that, you know, as as we have thought about and looked at all the kinds of characteristics that are important in the life of a leader and a pastor, and Pastor Mark, First of all, it was really great that they're Norwegian. <laughs> but you know what is, what is very, very important and most important of all is that the Spirit of God is on their lives. It's on their hearts. Because they cannot lead humanly. They need to lead, lead under the power of the Holy Spirit. And so our prayer this morning is that God would do that for you as you begin this new chapter. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for Pastor Mark and Judy, the journey that we are just discovering that they have been on, coming from Seattle, Seahawk fans, coming to Wisconsin, to lead and to love and to empower this congregation to be the ministers that you have called them to be so that together they will find people that need Jesus Christ in this community, that they will make a difference, that they will reach into those who are hurting and broken, that they will reach in and touch those people in this community that not only need Jesus Christ, the change of heart, but also collectively, I pray that you would, you, you would empower Pastor Mark and Judy in these days to lead this congregation in loving this community, to love the downtrodden, to love the poor, to love the sick, to love those who need to be visited, to, to love those who need to be touched and changed both spiritually as well as physically. I thank you, God, for what you are going to do. And as we stand here on the threshold of writing a new chapter for the Eau Claire Wesleyan Church in this community, I pray that your Holy Spirit would not just come down on pastor, but also on this congregation so that we would move forward empowered by your spirit to do the work that you've called us to do. We thank you for this and we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And everybody said, amen, amen. God bless you.